Section 31 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Lusher. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 31, Chapter 56, Part 4. When intelligence of the siege of Gloucester arrived in London, the consternation among the inhabitants was as great as if the enemy were already at their gates. The rapid progress of the royalists threatened the Parliament with immediate subjection. The factions and discontents among themselves in the city, and throughout the neighboring counties, prognosticated some dangerous division or insurrection. Those parliamentary leaders, it must be owned, who had introduced such mighty innovations into the English constitution, and who had projected so much greater, had not engaged in an enterprise which exceeded their courage and capacity. Great vigor from the beginning, as well as wisdom, they had displayed in all their councils, and a furious, headstrong body, broken loose from the restraint of law, had hitherto been retained in subjection under their authority, and firmly united by zeal and passion, as by the most legal and established government. A small committee, on whom the two houses devolved their power, had directed all their military operations, and had preserved a secrecy in deliberation, and a promptitude in execution, beyond what the king, notwithstanding the advantages possessed by a single leader, had ever been able to attain. Sensible that no jealousy was by their partisans entertained against them, they had on all occasions exerted an authority much more despotic than the royalists, even during the pressing exigencies of war, could with patience endure in their sovereign. Whoever incurred their displeasure, or was exposed to their suspicions, was committed to prison, and prosecuted under the notion of delinquency. After all the old jails were full, many new ones were erected, and even the ships were crowded with the royalists, both gentry and clergy, who anguished below decks, and perished in those unhealthy confinements. They imposed taxes, the heaviest and of the most unusual nature, by an ordinance of the two houses. They voted a commission for sequestrations, and they seized, wherever they had power, the revenues of all the king's party. And knowing that themselves and all their adherents were, by resisting the prince, exposed to the penalties of law, they resolved, by a severe administration, to overcome those terrors, and to retain the people in obedience by penalties of a more immediate execution. In the beginning of this summer, a combination, formed against them in London, had obliged them to exert the plenitude of their authority. Edward Waller, the first refiner of English versification, was a member of the lower house, a man of considerable fortune, and not more distinguished by his poetical genius than by his parliamentary talents, and by the politeness and elegance of his manners. As full of keen satire and invective in his eloquence, as of tenderness and panegyric in his poetry, he caught the attention of his hearers, and exerted the utmost boldness in blaming those violent counsels by which the commons were governed. Finding all opposition within doors to be fruitless, he endeavored to form a party without, which might oblige the Parliament to accept of reasonable conditions, and restore peace to the nation. The charms of his conversation, joined to his character of courage and integrity, had procured him the entire confidence of Northumberland, Conway, and every eminent person of either sex who resided in London. They opened their breasts to him without reserve, 
and expressed their disapprobation of the furious measures pursued by the commons, and their wishes that some expedient could be found for stopping so impetuous a career. Tompkins, Malter's brother-in-law, and Chaloner, the intimate friend of Tompkins, had entertained like sentiments, and as the connections of these two gentlemen lay chiefly in the city, they informed Waller that the same abhorrence of war prevailed there among all men of reason and moderation. Upon reflection, it seemed not impracticable that a combination might be formed between the lords and citizens, and by mutual consent the illegal taxes be refused, which the Parliament, without the royal assent, imposed on the people. While this affair was in agitation, and lists were making of such as they conceived to be well affected to their design, a servant of Topkins, who had overheard their discourse, immediately carried intelligence to Pym. Waller, Tompkins, and Chaloner were seized and tried by a court-martial. They were all three condemned, and the two latter executed on gibbets erected before their own doors. A covenant, as a test, was taken by the lords and commons, and imposed on their army, and on all who lived within their quarters. Besides resolving to amend and reform their lives, the covenanters there vow that they will never lay down their arms so long as the papists, now in open war against the Parliament, shall by force of arms be protected from justice. They express their abhorrence of the late conspiracy, and they promise to assist to the utmost the forces raised by both houses against the forces levied by the king. Waller, as soon as imprisoned, sensible of the great danger into which he had fallen, was so seized with the dread of death that all his former spirit deserted him, and he confessed whatever he knew, without sparing his most intimate friends, without regard to the confidence reposed in him, without distinguishing between the negligence of familiar conversation and the schemes of a regular conspiracy. With the most profound dissimulation, he counterfeited such remorse of conscience that his execution was put off, out of mere Christian compassion, till he might recover the use of his understanding. He invited visits from the ruling clergy of all sects, and while he expressed his own penitence, he received their devout exhortations with humility and reverence, as conveying clearer conviction and information than in his life he had ever before attained. Presents, too, of which, as well as of flattery, these holy men were not insensible, were distributed among them, as a small retribution for their prayers and ghostly counsel, and by all these artifices, more than from any regard to the beauty of his genius, of which during that time of furious Canton faction small account would be made, he prevailed so far as to have his life spared, and a fine of ten thousand pounds accepted in lieu of it. The severity exercised against the conspiracy, or rather project of Waller, increased the authority of the Parliament, and seemed to ensure them against like attempts for the future. But by the progress of the king's arms, the defeat of Sir William Waller, the taking of Bristol, the siege of Gloucester, a cry for peace was renewed, and with more violence than ever. Crowds of women, with a petition for that purpose, flocked about the house, and were so clamorous and importunate that orders were given for dispersing them, and some of the females were killed in the fray. Bedford, Holland, and Conway had deserted the Parliament and had gone to Oxford. Clare and Lovelace had followed them. Northumberland had retired to his county seat. Essex himself showed extreme dissatisfaction, and exhorted the Parliament to make peace. The upper house sent down terms of accommodation, more moderate than had hitherto been insisted on. It even passed, by a majority among the commons, that these proposals should be transmitted to the king. The zealots took the alarm. 
A petition against peace was framed in the city and presented by Pennington, the factious mayor. Multitudes attended him and renewed all the former menaces against the moderate party. The pulpits thundered, and rumors were spread of twenty thousand Irish who had landed and were to cut the throat of every Protestant. The majority was again turned to the other side, and all thoughts of pacification being dropped, every preparation was made for resistance and for the immediate relief of Gloucester, on which the Parliament was sensible all their hopes of success in the war did so much depend. Massey, resolute to make a vigorous defense, and having under his command a city and garrison ambitious of the crown of martyrdom, had hitherto maintained the siege with courage and abilities, and had much retarded the advances of the king's army. By continual sallies he infested them in their trenches, and gained sudden advantages over them. By disputing every inch of ground, he repressed the vigor and alacrity of their courage, elated by former successes. His garrison, however, was reduced to the last extremity, and he failed not from time to time to inform the Parliament that, unless speedily relieved, he should be necessitated, from the extreme want of provisions and ammunition, to open his gates to the enemy. The Parliament, in order to repair their broken condition and put themselves in a posture of defense, now exerted to the utmost their power and authority. They voted that an army should be levied under Sir William Waller, whom, notwithstanding his misfortunes, they loaded with extraordinary caresses. Having associated in their cause the counties of Hartford, Essex, Cambridge, Norfolk, Suffolk, Lincoln, and Huntington, they gave the Earl of Manchester a commission to be general of the association, and appointed an army to be levied under his command. But above all, they were intent that Essex's army, on which their whole fortune depended, should be put in a condition of marching against the king. They excited afresh their preachers to furious declamations against the royal cause. They even employed the expedient of pressing, though abolished by a late law, for which they had strenuously contended, and they engaged the city to send four regiments of its militia to the relief of Gloucester. All shops, meanwhile, were ordered to be shut, and every man expected, with the utmost anxiety, the event of that important enterprise. Essex, carrying with him a well-appointed army of fourteen thousand men, took the road of Bedford and Leicester, and, though inferior in cavalry, yet by the mere force of conduct and discipline he passed over those open champagne countries and defended himself from the enemy's horse who had advanced to meet him and who infested him during his whole march as he approached to gloucester the king was obliged to raise the siege and open the way for essex to enter that city the necessities of the garrison were extreme one barrel of powder was their whole stock of ammunition remaining and their other provisions were in the same proportion Essex had brought with him military stores, and the neighboring country abundantly supplied him with victuals of every kind. The inhabitants had carefully concealed all provisions from the king's army, and, pretending to be quite exhausted, had reserved their stores for that cause which they so much favored. The chief difficulty still remained. Essex dreaded a battle with the king's army, on account of its great superiority in cavalry, and he resolved to return, if possible, without running that hazard. He lay five days at Tewkesbury, which was his first stage after leaving Gloucester, and he feigned by some preparations to point toward Worcester. By a forced march during the night, he reached Sirencester, and obtained the double advantage of passing unmolested in an open country, and of surprising a convoy of provisions which lay in that town. Without delay he proceeded towards London, but when he reached Newbury, 
he was surprised to find that the king, by hasty marches, had arrived before him, and was already possessed of the place. An action was now unavoidable, and Essex prepared for it with presence of mind, and not without military conduct. On both sides the battle was fought with desperate valor and a steady bravery. Essex's horse were several times broken by the king's, but his infantry maintained themselves in firm array, and besides giving a continued fire, they presented an invincible rampart of pikes against the furious shock of Prince Rupert, and those gallant troops of gentry of which the royal cavalry was chiefly composed. The militia of London especially, though utterly unacquainted with action, though drawn but a few days before from their ordinary occupations, yet having learned all military exercises, and being animated with unconquerable zeal for the cause in which they were engaged, equaled on this occasion what could be expected from the most veteran forces. While the armies were engaged with the utmost ardor, night put an end to the action and left the victory undecided. Next morning Essex proceeded on his march, and though his rear was once put in some disorder by an incursion of the king's horse, he reached London in safety, and received applause for his conduct and success in the whole enterprise. The king followed him on his march, and having taken possession of Reading after the earl left it, he there established a garrison, and straightened by that means London and the quarters of the enemy. In the Battle of Newbury, on the part of the king, besides the earls of Sunderland and Carnarvon, two noblemen of promising hopes, was unfortunately slain, to the regret of every lover of ingenuity and virtue throughout the kingdom, Lucius Gary, Viscount Falkland, Secretary of State. Before assembling the present Parliament, this man, devoted to the pursuits of learning and to the society of all the polite and elegant, had enjoyed himself in every pleasure which a fine genius, a generous disposition, and an opulent fortune could afford. Called into public life, he stood foremost in all attacks on the high prerogatives of the crown, and displayed that masculine eloquence and undaunted love of liberty, which, from his intimate acquaintance with sublime spirits of antiquity, he had greedily imbibed. When civil convulsions proceeded to extremities, and it became requisite for him to choose his side, he tempered the ardor of his zeal, and embraced the defense of those limited powers which remained to monarchy, and which he deemed necessary for the support of the English constitution. Still anxious, however, for his country, he seems to have dreaded the too prosperous success of his own party, as much as of the enemy, and among his intimate friends often, after a deep silence and frequent sighs, he would with a sad accent reiterate the word peace. In excuse for the too free exposing of his person, which seemed unsuitable in a secretary of state, he alleged that it became him to be more active than other men in all hazardous enterprises, lest his impatience for peace might bear the imputation of cowardice or pusillanimity. From the commencement of the war, his natural cheerfulness and vivacity became clouded, and even his usual attention to dress, required by his birth and station, gave way to a negligence which was easily observable. On the morning of the battle in which he fell, he had shown some care of adorning his person, and gave for a reason that the enemy should not find his body in any slovenly indecent situation. I am weary, subjoined he, of the times, and foresee much misery to my country, but believe that I shall be out of it ere night. This excellent person was but thirty-four years of age when a period was thus put to his life. The loss sustained on both sides in the Battle of Newbury, and the advanced season, obliged the armies to retire into winter quarters. In the north, during this summer, 
the great interest and popularity of the Earl, now created Marquis of Newcastle, had raised a considerable force for the King, and great hopes of success were entertained from that quarter. There appeared, however, in opposition to him, two men on whom the event of the war finally depended, and who began about this time to be remarked for their valour and military conduct. These were Sir Thomas Fairfax, son of the lord of that name, and Oliver Cromwell. The former gained a considerable advantage at Wakefield over a detachment of royalists, and took General Goring prisoner. The latter obtained a victory at Gainsborough over a party commanded by the gallant Cavendish, who perished in the action. But both these defeats of the royalists were more than sufficiently compensated by the total rout of Lord Fairfax at Atherton Moor, and the dispersion of his army. After this victory, Newcastle, with an army of fifteen thousand men, sat down before Hull. Hotham was no longer governor of this place. That gentleman and his son, partly from a jealousy entertained of Lord Fairfax, partly repenting of their engagements against the king, had entered into a correspondence with Newcastle, and had expressed an intention of delivering Hull into his hands. But their conspiracy being detected, they were arrested and sent prisoners to London, where, without any regard to their former services, they fell, both of them, victims to the severity of the Parliament. Newcastle, having carried on the attack of Hull for some time, was beat off by a sally of the garrison, and suffered so much that he thought proper to raise the siege. About the same time, Manchester, who advanced from the eastern associated counties, having joined Cromwell and young Fairfax, obtained a considerable victory over the Royalists at Horncastle, where the two officers last mentioned gained renown by their conduct and gallantry. And though fortune had thus balanced her favors, the king's party still remained much superior in those parts of England, and had it not been for the garrison of Hull, which kept Yorkshire in awe, a conjunction of the northern forces with the army in the south might have been made, and had probably enabled the king, instead of entering on the unfortunate, perhaps imprudent enterprise of Gloucester, to march directly to London, and put an end to the war. While the military enterprises were carried on with vigor in England, and the event became every day more doubtful, both parties cast their eye toward the neighboring kingdoms, and sought assistance for the finishing of that enterprise in which their own forces experienced such furious opposition. The Parliament had recourse to Scotland, the King to Ireland. End of section 31, chapter 56, part 4. Recording by Matt Lusher, San Francisco.